All right, let's pray over the word. Father, we love your word. Father, we ask that you'd speak to us. Lord, we ask for your grace, your spirit to be present ministering to us today. We trust you. We bless you. It's in Jesus' name. Somebody say amen. Amen. Catherine von Bora, she was born in 1499 to a family that was wealthy at one point, but somewhere along the way, we can kind of fit the pieces together that they lost their money. And so they sent uh, Catherine, Katie, she's called, to to the church to become a nun uh, because they couldn't really afford financially to provide for her. In her kind of early adulthood, uh, think 15, oh, somebody's going to correct me, 15, 19-ish, the Protestant Reformation really begins to take root. And so Catherine and, and if some other of the nuns, they write to Martin Luther and they ask if Martin Luther would help them escape. Martin Luther gets down like that. He's ready. So he puts them in fish barrels um, in his cart and he sneaks these nuns uh, off because because they didn't want to be nuns. They wanted to get married. And Martin Luther was actually the matchmaker. You can find this in several sources um, and so part of the deal was that Luther had a wife or a husband prepared for all of these nuns when they escaped. Um, but Catherine's husband, when Luther introduced her, she, she really fell in love with him. She thought he was incredible. They were kind of the match made in heaven. But his family wasn't really keen on, on hit their son marrying a poor nun. And so they kind of quickly rushed him off to be married to another. And Catherine was left heartbroken. Around this time, Luther had begun to write that he thought it was appropriate for a minister to marry, obviously, in, in, in church history, and especially in the West, in Roman tradition, pastors, priests were not allowed to marry. And so Luther had begun to write that it, would, it is appropriate for pastors to marry. And about that time, he introduced Catherine to an older man. And Catherine said, I don't want anything to do with that man. I'll marry you or no one. Um, and so she and Luther... Uh, Tied the knot, man. They, they made it happen. So what you have now is Luther was also a monk and had vowed himself to chastity. And Catherine had made that vow as well. So in the middle of the Protestant, Protestant Reformation, their entire community believed that because they had both made vows of chastity and now broken them and gotten married, that their kids would have two heads. Or if they were able to have a kid, if they didn't just keep miscarrying, then their kids would would have to be the Antichrist. Um, and there was just all of this kind of visceral, mean uh, hatred spewed around Luther and, and Katie. They were both like crazy smart and quirky and kind of pushed at each other. But they ended up having six kids, healthy kids. And um, Katie and Luther love each other for the entirety of their lives. There's, there's a few interesting facts I'll lobby for you uh, about their relationship. Luther, if you know anything about Luther, he did this thing called table talks where um, a lot of young kind of scholastic theologian guys would come and sit at the table and ask theological questions. Well, we know that Katie was the only woman ever present at the table. And there was a time or two where a man would pull Luther aside later and say, Katie is a little too outspoken. She's a little too opinionated. And you need to put her in her place. And Luther, with all of his kind of quirky dogmaticism, would just say, no. <laughs> like, it's, it's our table. She can talk. Um, 
Katie was like known for her beer. You know, Luther's uh, Germans and their beer. Luther loved when she 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 made beer for everyone. She handled the finances because Luther sucked at money. Um, so they just had this really interesting, like quirky love for each other. One of the things you'll find in like all of their biographies is that it was really common in the day for when the husband died for him to leave all of the wealth to the children for that process, that transaction of, of money and land uh, to leave the wife and be given straight to the son. And when Luther was passing, he, he was very intentional to make sure that the kids didn't get the money yet, that mama was taken care of for the years to come. They could get the money when she was done. And that was so unheard of that Luther was so concerned with, with Katie's well-being after he passed. She lived like seven or eight years after he went to be with the Lord. Now, as we turn today to our scripture in Mark 10, we run into this marriage passage. Jesus talking about the height of Christian marriage, the beauty of marriage. And I think it's fascinating to think about um, a monk and a nun, both vowed to never marry, falling in love, and not only falling in love, but being faithful to each other for generations and generations, uh, uh, decades and decades and decades, and uniquely serving each other and, and loving each other. You can actually find some of Luther's hottest debates uh, with Erasmus in particular. He's having this really hot theological debate um, and you can find him writing to Katie just kind of fuming about what he's mad about. And, and that's what I do to Haley. I come home and say, I'm so angry at our kids that we have. I'm just kidding. <laughs> at the 18 children that we produced. Um, and, and Katie and Luther have this strange, unique, beautiful love for the entirety of their lives. I'm not a big fan of funerals. Um, just not, just one of those people, I don't really love funerals. But on occasion, I've done a funeral where a husband, uh, maybe the husband passes, but the husband and wife have been married for 50 years. Just faithful, dogged commitment to each other. And in 50 years, there's lots of memories and stories and pictures and highs and lows. And you hear a wife talking about her husband and the season where they had no money and Everything fell apart or they lost a child. And there is something profoundly holy, sacred even, about laying a man to rest who's been faithful to his wife for 50 plus years. Now, we live in a day where our divorce rates are higher than history has ever known, quite frankly. Um, divorce rates at the turn of the 20th century, so like 1910, divorce rates were like 10%. Um, as you move towards the 60s and 70s, we're well over 50% now. And so Christian marriage is sacred. It works towards the moment when the husband or wife is laid in the ground and the grandchildren and great-grandchildren gather to hear the stories of how they've loved each other faithfully through the Great Depression and through World War II and and through, you know, this financial collapse, Christian marriage works to leave a legacy of unfettered devotion to the generations. It is holy and sacred, and it is totally desecrated in our generation. Now let's read Mark 10, verse 1 through 12, and I'm going to do my best to unravel for us 
Jesus's perspective on what marriage is. Mark 10, 1 through 2, he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. Pharisees came up and in order to test him, note that line, in order to test him, they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, remember where we are in this kind of the flow of Mark's narrative. He's been teaching the disciples privately, remember? Privately, he's been talking to the disciples about selflessness. And privately, he's talking to the disciples about the fact that he's going to be crucified and that they need to learn to serve one another. He was privately depositing the character and the culture of the kingdom to the disciples as they've journeyed forward. But now they've journeyed beyond the region and crowds gather. And the scripture says it was his custom to teach the crowds. And as Jesus is teaching the crowds, the Pharisees gather, and our text today said they gathered for what purpose? To test him. Now, I want to give you a little bit of context that I think is there in the scripture. The, the circumstance, the situation that I'm going to present for you, I think is the correct one. I think this is what's happening in the text. Jesus has journeyed into the region that Herod governs, Herod Antipas. Herod, the Herod who John the Baptist confronted for his false marriage. Do you remember this from studying Mark's gospel earlier? Herod has married his brother's wife. And John the Baptist publicly and personally had rebuked Herod on several occasions for his marriage to a woman that did not belong to him. And do you remember where it got Herod? Or where it got John the Baptist? Prison and then where? Headless. Okay, so the downfall of John the Baptist was what? Critiquing Herod's marriage. So now we have Jesus in Herod's region again, and they say, you know what, Jesus, we want to know what your views on marriage are. What is the underlying question they're asking? Do you support Herod's marriage or not? Is Herod in sin or is he not in sin? So they're trying to trap Jesus in the snare that caused John the Baptist to lose his life. And so as the conversation progresses, there are essentially two views. So I'm going to need you to hang with me a second because we've got to do a little bit of teacher mode for a minute. Okay, everybody say teacher mode. Let's go. Historically speaking, in this day, culturally, there were two views being held by two parties. Both parties 
went to Deuteronomy 24 and they quoted a specific line of scripture and then defined it. So I'll show you that really quick. Deuteronomy 24, one through four. When a man takes a wife, this, you guys know where we are. This is Moses uh, giving the law to Israel in the Exodus. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because this is what you want to underline, highlight in your Bible, whatever, because he has found some indecency in her. The entire debate is around that line, found some indecency in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and he puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that your Lord God is giving you for an inheritance. So if a man takes a wife and then he doesn't favor her because he finds some indecency in her and writes a certificate of divorce, that's the, the line of scripture that's being debated. Now, contextually, Moses is talking about divorcing a woman and then remarrying her later. He's saying, you can't say this woman's unfit to be my wife and then come back later and change your mind. It's actually the point of the, the text. But historically, the two parties, the, the primary parties at this point, interpret this scripture differently. The two schools of thought, first we'll look at the Shammai. This would be um, the conservative school of thought. The Shammai says this, a man may not divorce his wife unless he has found unchastity in her, for it is written because he has found some indecency in her. So the Shammai, everyone says Shammai, interpreted that line of scripture, if he finds something indecent in her, to mean that if a man found that his wife was committing adultery, then he could have a divorce. The liberal, there are always liberals and conservatives. We'll save that conversation for another day. The school of Hillel said this, he may divorce her even if she spoiled a dish for him, for it is written because he hath found some indecency in her. Okay, so here's the, the delineation between the conservatives and the liberals. Conservatives say a man can divorce his wife if she's adulterous. The liberals say a man can divorce his wife if she cannot cook. So now put Herod in the middle of that. And they're saying to Jesus, do you think Herod divorced and remarried rightly? And it's obvious that Herod divorced and remarried on a kind of lustful wanting his brother's wife. And so maybe the liberals would say, I don't know, did the lady he divorced cook really sloppily, then Herod's justified. The conservatives are saying, absolutely not. Marriage and divorce cannot be. Somebody's trying to trip me. You see this? They're like, let's see if we get Caleb to fall this Sunday. The conservatives are saying, you don't get to divorce your wife just because you feel like it. 
So what we, what we find is this, these two branches of people and then Jesus standing in front of the Pharisees who say, now which one is it? Which one is it? Jesus responds by taking them past Moses to the garden. So he begins to talk about the, the order and the design of creation. He tells us three things, that the man should leave his father and mother. One, young men, at some point you need to get out of mama and daddy's house, okay? That is biblical. Must leave his father and mother. Two, he should cleave to a woman. The man should cleave to a woman. They say Jesus said nothing about sexuality. He, he was very clear. Man cleaves to a woman. Three, those two become one flesh. Those two become one flesh. Now notice what he said. What God has joined together, let no man separate. So Jesus says the married couple who has become one flesh, God did that. There is some mysterious, supernatural working of the Spirit that causes in some mysterious way the two individuals to become one flesh. They are one joined together by a divine working. And it's sacred and it's holy. Let no man separate that. Now, when we start to try to think biblically about what does it mean to be one flesh, we find Paul kind of exploring this idea in Ephesians 5.28, when Paul says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So part of the one flesh thing means that I love my wife as if she is my own body. If I step on a rusty nail, I don't just keep moving along like nothing happened. I'm like screaming, somebody get me a tetanus shot. Stick it here. Right? If I, if I cut my foot open with glass, I don't just keep walking forward. I lay down and go, get it out. So I'm, I'm, in the way that I care for my body, I must have that same intentionality and fervency to care for my spouse. She is my body. And so when my wife is suffering with anxiety or she's feeling a little bit anxious and she's struggling in this season of life, her struggle is my priority. Her frustration is, is my first priority. So in that sense, in the same way that I'm responsible to care for this body, and everyone in the room knows that, we care for our own bodies. I am responsible to care for the physical body, the soul, the emotions, the spiritual well-being of my spouse. That is part of what it means to be one. So in this context, guys, I know that there's lots of nuance to this. In this context, my wife, who is my spouse, I would never physically harm her. To physically harm your spouse, men, to lay a hand on your wife is to abuse this principle. Unless you're sitting around mutilating yourself, there's no, you see what I'm saying? To, to smack your wife is the same thing as to, to cut yourself. And so a man who lays a hand on his wife violates the covenant of marriage, violates the principle of one body. 
the sacredness of marriage begins to spill over as we think about the fact that it's something that God did. You want me to lighten the mood just for a second? Um, this is funny. Um, I, oh, shoot. I hope you think it's funny. If not, it's totally somebody else's fault. Um, in Luther's day, uh, it was really because they had such a theological conviction that the two becoming one flesh was an act of God that was supernatural. The marriage went like this. You would go to a church and usually have a small wedding with just, just a few people with the, with the uh, priest. And then you would go consummate your marriage um, intimately. we got me trying to speak. Kids don't know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm saying. They did that. And then they would go celebrate, you know, have the big party. And part of the view was that the, what happened in the marriage bed was so holy and profound that they actually, this is so weird. They actually required a witness. So, so, so I don't know why we're talking about this now, but we are. So Luther's best man stood in the room and oftentimes they had a viewing section, stood in the room and, and he wrote in his diary, this weirdo, he wrote in his diary that he cried as they consummated their marriage because it was so beautiful. I would have been throwing my shoe at him. Get out, bro. You, what's you doing crying in the room? Um, there, there was literally a viewing station in some of the rooms. He cried. It was so beautiful. He'd be crying because I'm going to punch him in the nose. While he's crying. But, but <laughs> that's weird. Okay, we all agree on that. <laughs> but the theological conviction that there is something profoundly holy about that covenant, we need to carry forward. So Jesus says, God does this, let no man separate it. Afterwards, the disciples come and ask again, and Jesus says, if a man divorces his wife or a woman divorces her husband and remarries, then they commit adultery. And the context is flippantly. If the man or wife divorces flippantly with the Hillel thing because they can't cook, because we can't agree on finances, because we fell out of love. Falling out of love is not a biblical concept. Like, fall back in. I don't know what to tell you. Um, we, we just drifted apart. If you just drifted apart, then you got to figure out how to drift back together. Like, flippant divorce, casual divorce is, is sin in the eyes of Jesus. Casual divorce is sin. Cultural casual divorce, us Christians in the room, we have to swing away from and lean into the holiness of marriage. In Matthew 19.9, Jesus reinforces the conservative view, saying that, that divorce is appropriate when, when one of the individuals has had an affair. So, listen to me. I'm going to try to give you the best biblical perspective I can. Marriage is so holy in the eyes of God that to have sexual intercourse outside of that union is such a betrayal of trust that Jesus says the innocent party, so let's just say the man committed adultery and the woman now is left with the knowledge that her husband has betrayed the most sacred union that they have with each other. 
she has the right and the liberty to not commit herself again to someone who has proved themselves to be untrustworthy. Now, R.C. Sproul says this as he's teaching this, and I think this is profound, and maybe some of you guys are going to hate me for it, um, but that's on you. (laughs) Snarky. Um, Oftentimes, when there is a scenario like we just described, okay, let's say the, the husband cheats on the wife, maybe for years, or maybe just happened one or two times, whatever. The church begins to rally around the wife, and we usually violently encourage the wife to fight for rehabilitation. And R.C. Sproul's point was that, like, in the same way that if someone physically abuses you over and over again, we do not say, forgiveness is letting them hit you again. In the same way, the the wife in this scenario, she has the liberty to exit this marriage, and it is not sinful of her. And so oftentimes we try to say, take the higher road. Like, there's not really a biblical higher road. Like, the the covenant has been violated. You guys follow what I'm saying? And, And for her, she is not required to commit herself again to someone who has violated her most sacred trust. If she chooses to do so, the church would celebrate that. Right? Like, yeah, fight for your marriage. Cool. If she chooses to say, that was such a betrayal for me, I'm out, and I'm, I've got to reconvene, the church has to say, that's your right. If the husband in this scenario, obviously these roles could be reversed. If the husband in this scenario comes with tears and repentance, the wife is not required to receive him as her husband again, though she is required to receive him as a brother in the Lord. So Sproul's argument was, as the church, we need to be wise to not put a pressure on a spouse who's been betrayed to keep being betrayed if in their conscience they're saying that person is not trustworthy, they have the liberty to exit. Because, again, when you allow the covenant to become supremely sacred, sexual morality becomes a a great degrading of something so holy. The takeaway from that, the implication would be men and women alike. We cannot engage in the casual divorce of our culture, nor can we engage in the casual sexuality of our culture. Right? If you're flirting with a coworker, like stop yesterday. Right? Like you, you, you can't, to, to have sexual intercourse outside of the covenant of your marriage is to betray your spouse in the utmost way, biblically speaking. That's not Caleb's opinion. That's just Bible. Now, from there, you could ask me about 16, 17, 18 other nuances, right? Like, um, we get this sometimes. The husband has not had, let's say this situation. The husband has not had a physical affair, although he has been addicted to pornography, interacting with women online, continually sending pictures. In no way has there been physical contact but there has been a betrayal of the covenant, what do you do now? I get these questions all the time. The husband is violent. What do you do now? Separating on the basis of violence is not flippant divorce. Separating on the basis of 
this man continually engages with sexual content and people online. His defense is, I've never touched anybody, but from my perspective, he's violated our covenant over and over again. What does this wife do? So many times people come to me and they say, Caleb, can I divorce? And I say, you tell me. <laughs> like, I am, not your, I am not your stamp of approval as to whether or not you can separate. You have to be alone in the presence of God and have good conscience before the Father that what you are doing is because the covenant has been violated in such a way that you can no longer trust. It's a deep, um, you got to wade through the messiness of that with counsel and with friends, but you can't come to me and expect me just to stamp it. Like, I'm not going to stamp it. I won't stand before God on the basis of what you decided to do in that situation. So if you say to me, Caleb, my husband continually has sexual things happening on the internet, and I divorced him on the basis of adultery. To me, that was adultery. I feel justified before the Lord with a clean conscience and a clean heart. I can say this covenant was violated. I stepped out of the marriage because of that addiction. I'm not arguing with you. If you say, my husband has acted violently, continually, and it's no longer safe, I'm not arguing with you. I, I, I think we need to do three things. You ready? Allow the sacredness of marriage to rise in our thinking. Two, we need to recognize what flippant divorce is. What flippant, I'm just done with you, I don't like you, I've had... I've had Women say that to me so many times. I don't like him. And I say, I didn't choose him. That was you. I don't like him either. That's true. I've said that more than one time. I wouldn't have done that. Too late. Right? That's, that's part of swearing to your own hurt, the proverb says. So we need to recognize flippant divorce. And three, when the sacredness and holiness of marriage is violated, I think it's helpful for the church to do our best to counsel one another and support one another, but the individuals have to stand before the Lord and, and in their conscience be able to justify their actions. Right? It's not our job to talk them in or talk them out or to approve or disapprove if it's a matter of sexual immorality, a nuance of physical violence. Um, they, they've got to stand on their own two feet before the Lord. There's delineation between flippant and the sacred has been trampled upon. You guys following me there? If we allow the sacredness of marriage to rise in our thinking, and we embrace Jesus' concept that in marriage, the two have become one flesh by the workings of God, what God joined together. If we allow that covenant to become holy towards us in the center of our thinking, there we will recognize that the devotion I display for my wife for the entirety of my life, that devotion is a reflection of the way in which Jesus is devoted to his bride. It's very plainly in creation imagery that Jesus will have a bride. He will pursue her endlessly, violently, fervently uh, for all of eternity. Jesus will show radical, pure, holy devotion to a bride. And then he says, when a man and woman come together in faithfulness and devotion, 
they are gospeling the world, considering my love for my bride as they live devoted to one another. So we're in the funeral, and I'm laying a man in the grave who's lived faithfully to his wife for 50, 60 years through sweat, blood, and tears, and his great-grandkids are saying, he really loved her. And I say, yes, because he looked like Jesus. The devotion of the marriage brings the gospel to the forefront for our neighbors, our coworkers, but most importantly, maybe most importantly, our kids and grandkids. You got to stay committed to that thing. You got to hold it in a sacred view, a holy perspective. Fight for it because it's intended to display the way in which Jesus violently, fervently loves us. And you say, I don't like my wife. I don't think Jesus likes you sometimes. I don't know how he could. But he's committed. I'm teasing with that. The the one who knows me most deeply loves me most intently. And then he requires of me that that be the way that I view marriage. Desiree, if you want to come for me. As, As we wind down, I think practically speaking, I want to ask you to do one thing this week, okay? Some of you guys are single and you're like, Caleb, I don't really care what you're talking about today. Um, Cool. Write this down. Get out a pen and paper, put it in your phone, little Gen Zers. Um, Take 10 minutes this week. Pick one, one day. Say, you do your devotion every day of the week. Pick Wednesday. In 10 minutes of your devotion, I want you to reflect on the faithfulness of Jesus to you in your darkest hours. Reflect on the fact that in your filth, in your perversion, in your manipulation and deceit, in your anger, in your darkest, dirtiest moments, Jesus just kept coming. Right? You just kept loving me, just kept pursuing me. I would have saw me and said, no, thank you. But Jesus just keeps coming. And as you reflect on, I want you to write that down, reflect on Jesus's devotion for 10 minutes. As you reflect on Jesus's devotion, you should begin to be filled with thankfulness, right? Like my heart becomes glad when I think on the way in which Jesus picked me up in my darkest hours. In my most embarrassing moments, he seemed to be the closest. The the first time um, Haley and I got married really young and we got pregnant really quick, obviously. Um, uh, but the first, the, first, the first baby we miscarried. And that was, I've told you this before, just total shock. Like I was just really shocked and broken. I don't know that I've ever, and I've been through some stuff. I don't know that anything's ever messed with me like that. And in the darkest brokenness of laying on the ground and just weeping. And I, and I felt like everyone needed to rally around Haley. And I needed to rally around Haley. I needed to be strong. But when everybody went to bed, it's just me with my face in the ground feeling totally just beat up. And in that moment, knowing Jesus' presence like never before. Like, tell me he hasn't done that for you. Tell me in the darkest, worst those anxiety-driven moments, he hasn't shown up. And as you think on that, and you begin to be filled,
filled with joy and thankfulness. You reflect on his devotion. The second thing we want to do is we want to turn and decide how we can reflect that devotion towards our spouses. So we're going to reflect on the devotion of Jesus, and we're going to reflect the devotion of Jesus to the one that we are joined together with. And so there, when I think about the way that Jesus shows up in that moment, when the baby's not here, we got to figure out that, when Jesus shows up and loves how do I take that kind of faithfulness and pour it on Haley? Okay, now you're doing Christianity. Like now you're beyond that. I just show up on Sunday and lift my hands and read my Bible and then I go to work and live like everyone else. There, when you actually begin to love your spouse with intentionality, now we're, now we're looking like Jesus. Reflect on his devotion, reflect his devotion towards our spouse through, here's your question mark that you need to fill in. How can I care for them this week in a way that would revive their soul? Some of your spouses, like, uh, I was texting Brad and, and Chris and Lisa this week because Haley was just struggling a little bit. And I was like, all right, I need restaurant recommendations because Haley's Cajun blood needs good food when she's struggling. That's all she wants is coffee and good food. I don't get it. I clearly get it. That's why I got these glove handles. Um, but I'm texting this week going like, all right, Haley, Haley needs some air. Give me some good restaurants we can go to. Some of your ladies, some of your spouses, men just need solitude. Life has been so hectic and crazy. They haven't been able to get alone and just hear God. And you can intentionally create a couple hours where they can get away and just sit and be with the Lord. Some of us, our spouses are literally bleeding out. And you just keep going to work grinding saying, suck it up, buttercup. Like, it might be care in that situation. You might reflect the love of Jesus by calling the church. Someone's going to answer and just say, hey, we're struggling. Can you set us up with a marriage counselor? Or my spouse is, maybe it's not your marriage is falling apart. They're just struggling. My spouse is really struggling. Can you, can you help me connect with a therapist? Like, that would be caring for your spouse in a way that Jesus cares for us. One, reflect on his goodness towards you. And two, reflect that goodness towards your spouse, towards your partner. Now, half of you are going, I'm single. You get to babysit this week. Congratulations. Hallelujah. I'm teasing. I'm I'm totally teasing. Um, If you're single, man, pick someone in your life. Maybe it's, maybe it's, you know, maybe your, your dad passing your mom's single or your mom's a widow. Like, how can you reflect the love of Jesus to your widowed mother in this season? Maybe it's a, you, you just know that your roommate is in, a, in an hour where things are really tough. How can you reflect the, G, the love, devotion of Jesus to your roommate in this hour? I think we've got to ponder that. And listen, guys, listen to me. We have to execute. Okay, we've got to move beyond showing up raising our hands and singing. That's all beautiful and wonderful and holy, and I pray you always do it. But if it's only a Sunday morning activity, we're not doing Christianity. We're not following the ways of Jesus. Reflect on, reflect to. Say it with me. Reflect on, reflect to. Oh my gosh, you're holy. Go ahead and stand to your feet. We're going to worship for a minute. Um, Desiree is going to sing for us and, and the song that she's chosen. It's just such a beautiful uh, representation of Jesus pursuing us. 
But as we worship and just reflect on Jesus's devotion towards us together, the altar is going to be open. And if you're struggling in any of this area or you maybe you're just worn out, man, the altars are open for you to come. Miss Jackie had a kind of a vision this morning that the fire of the Lord was here to just kind of consume sin, consume frustrations, anything you want to lay down today. Miss Jackie said she just felt like God was saying, just come lay it down. I got it. And so as we sing and reflect on Jesus's devotion, just for a moment, if you need to come to the altar and lay some stuff down, it's open to you. Altar team, if you get in place for me.